Hey everybody and welcome to Airy Live. I'm Mark Tier, the founder of Black Spectacles. And today again, I'm with Mike Newman and we're gonna be reviewing our mock exam for the ARE 5.0 project management exam. Now this is the second exam in ARE 5.0. And while, you know, the one we did last uh, session, uh, which was on practice management, was sort of the first exam in ARE 5.0, really kind of covers what you need to run a practice. This exam, project management, is really about how you execute the project for the most part. So uh, really excited, uh, looks like a ton of people um, submitted their answers to this uh, to this uh, mock exam, so it should be fun to, uh, to go through that. Before we get started, if you'd like to attend our next ARE Live broadcast, uh, where we're gonna ask a group of recently licensed architects how they did it, how they passed, uh, what techniques they used, uh, what's their favorite way to celebrate after the exam, et cetera. It's really usually a, kind of a fun session. Uh, be sure to visit blackspectacles.com slash podcast to register. And during the broadcast, you'll have an ant uh, a question uh, you'll have an opportunity to ask questions of the group and get some, some good feedback. So, um, so that should be a really great session. And there's always really good information that comes from that. Yeah. It, uh, it's always a, there's always something surprising that comes out of it and some really useful element. Absolutely. Um, so as you guys probably know here at Black Spectacles, we have uh, built a comprehensive ARE 4 and 5 exam curricula that you can utilize um, you know, to help you prepare for the exams. And I often like to remind folks that if you'd like your boss to pay for your Black Spectacles membership, you know, be sure to tell them about our firm licenses for any size firm, whether you work at a 10-person or a 10,000-person firm. You know, we have a variety of different options and so forth. Um, so visit blackspectacles.com firms to learn more about that. Um, and just so you guys know, at the end of um, our session today, um, if you're not lucky enough to have your boss pay for it and you're looking for a, a special discount, we'll have one of those to share at the end. Um, and in addition to that, since we're doing a mock exam today, uh, we'll choose someone from all the folks who submitted their answers to the mock exam, and they'll win a free one-month ARE prep Black Spectacle subscription, and we'll be tracking your answers, and everyone who gets them all right will get a free Black Spectacles t-shirt. So we got all kinds of stuff going on today. <laughs> um, uh, of course, my guest is Mike Newman. If you don't know Mike, he's an adjunct professor at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. He's also the founder of Shed Studio, and he is the instructor for Black Spectacles online ARE exam prep curriculum. If you haven't already checked out our ARE exam prep curriculum, head over to blackspectacles.com to watch any of the free tutorials from the courses. Uh, today we'll be taking questions during the go to, uh, using the GoToWebinar question box, as well as on Twitter using the ARE Live uh, podcast hashtag. So that's hashtag ARE Live podcast. And one last thing that's kind of interesting before we uh, hand it over here to Mike is, so next week we're gonna be at the um, formerly known as the AIA convention. Now it's the AIA, I believe it's called the AIA Conference on Architecture, A17. Um, what's cool is we're gonna have a chance to interview and talk with Jared Zern, uh, who's the director of the exam uh, from NCARB. And so here's an opportunity. Um, before, we, before we go, I thought we should ask you guys, what would you guys like us to ask Jared? Um, we're gonna compile your questions. So please put them in the question box here. Maybe, maybe put NCARB at the beginning of your questions just so we can sort of categorize them and then take them all. We'll take them, we'll ask Jared, and we'll bring back uh, all the answers for you guys. And last year when we talked to him at the convention and they were getting ready to launch 5.0 and there was a lot of discussion in the air and it was a really great conversation and he was more than willing to uh, talk to us about all sorts of different things. And I know he would be really happy to know that uh, you guys had asked a bunch of questions and that we were 
channeling them forward. So I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. All right. So um, again, just throw those questions you might have. I'll remind you guys again as we go along here, but uh, in the question box. But in the meantime, let me hand it over to Mike. Okay, uh, so as Mark said, uh, last time we looked at uh, practice management, and practice management, if you think of it, is you're sort of getting ready uh, to do projects. So it's all the things that it takes to be ready to do projects, getting uh, your sort of system ready, getting your insurance ready, getting your marketing ready, getting your sort of uh, the, the way that you're gonna uh, put teams together, all of that. Project management is you sort of imagine, all right, now I have the project. So this isn't about the practice anymore. This is now about, uh, you know, running a specific project. Now, of course, uh, every question will be about a different specific project, but the idea is that you're now uh, talking about kind of the organizational aspects to running a specific project. Uh, a lot of the questions in this could be found in other parts of the exam because obviously other parts of the exam talk about specific portions of the project as it goes along. Uh, and so there'll be a lot of crossover with uh, specifically uh, the construction administration exam, exam number six, and, but also with all of the other uh, exams as well. So you'll find this one is kind of an overview one to, uh, to many degrees. But given that, let's just uh, jump in and start uh, running through some some questions. Okay, number one, uh, the project architect working on a large interior build-out for a law office is trying to figure out whether the project is on budget so far. The client has just signed off uh, of the design development phase of the project. Uh, the overall architecture fee is for 200,000. How much of the fee should be left? So the gist of what's happening on this one is they're just uh, trying to see if you kind of understand uh, how the sort of general scale of how projects move along. And so the typical way that we think about this, and this is what's in all of the contracts, is you have schematic design, SD, you have design development, uh, DD, you have the contract documents, uh, kind of permit sets and construction drawings and things like that, CDs, and then you have the bidding phase, and then you have the construction administration phase. And most people will put these numbers, now I'm going to say most people because these actually do change a little bit from place to place and there's some discussion about it uh, these days that it might be a little different in the future. But right now, uh, the way most people would talk about this would be say that SD is approximately 15% of the overall uh, sort of budget. DD is approximately 20%. CDs is approximately 45%. Uh, for bidding, you set aside about 5% of the time, and then that leaves 15% uh, for CA. So if we were at uh, the end of DD, which is what it's asking for here, it says the uh, client has just signed off on the uh, DD phase. So if we're at the end of DD, that means we're 35% of the way through. Now, it's possible that some people may switch these. Uh, there's been a lot of discussion that SD really is taking longer these days than it used to uh, because of the nature of uh, 3D modeling and a bunch of those sort of expectations of clients. So maybe it's 20 and then 15, uh, or possibly even 20 and 20 and then 40 for CDs. So these things, like I said, are changing a little bit. But for the sort of general purposes of what we're talking about, we can say we're at approximately 35% of the way through the project. 
So if the overall budget is 200,000, that means we've spent, uh, in terms of time, about 70,000, but the question is how much should be left? So the answer is C, 130,000 of our fee is left. And with that 130,000, we're gonna use our, for time, we're gonna fulfill the CD phase, the bidding phase, and all of the construction administration phase. Uh, so fairly simple, just sort of understanding the, the sort of phasing of a project uh, and how it uh, sort of moves through the, the element here. Don't get confused by the fact that, okay, it was 200,000, not 100, so you have to double it, and that it was the amount left, not the amount we've used. So just kind of throwing those little things in there to kind of remind you that you have to actually really think about what the question is really asking you before you really jump into the answer. So C, 130 grand. Question number two. Question number two is essentially the same question, but with just a subtly different way of thinking about it. So, okay, the project architect working on a large interior build out for a law office is trying to figure out whether the project is on budget so far. The client has signed off of the design development phase of the project. The timesheets show that there has been approximately 350 hours of time with project designers who are paid $25 an hour. Uh, approximately 150 hours of uh, time with uh, general architects and the team architects who are paid about $32 an hour uh, and approximately 100 hours of time with the project architect and the project manager uh, and they're paid about $40 an hour. Uh, so uh, how much should the firm have billed so far? So again we're at that same point the end of design development so we're we should be approximately uh, uh, 35% of the way through, so we actually already know that the answer is D, because we just went through it, it's 35% of the way through, that's the closest one, 35,000 is going to be uh, way too low comparatively, 17,000 doesn't make sense. I do think that A, how the hell should I know, is a pretty good answer for pretty much any question on the exam, uh, but obviously not relevant here. So what is this really getting at? So the first thing it's trying to get you to realize is that how much you're paying people per hour is only one part of the story. Uh, so the fact that the, some folks are being paid $25 an hour, some are 32, some are 40, that's important to know, but it's not actually, when we think about billable hours, that's not the thing that's driving it, it's the billing rate that somebody goes for. Now, if we just added up these numbers, the 350 hours at $25 an hour, et cetera, et cetera, then you would end up at that 17.5. So that gives you a sense of the sort of scale of the numbers. Uh, but as I said, that's not enough. You need to have enough money coming in that's gonna pay for uh, a portion of the rent, a portion of the insurance, a portion of the vehicles and travel expenses, the portion of the computers and the general liability insurance and all of those other things will add up onto these numbers. So typically, in a general way, you'll see, depends a little bit on where you are in the country, uh, but it'll be the hourly rate times three, maybe four, uh, I usually use 3.5. So uh, if you kind of imagine the hourly rate of uh, uh, somebody 
uh, for the $40 an hour uh, pay rate, uh, then you'd multiply that by 3.5, that would get you in the ballpark of, let's see, 140. Um, so you're billing the project managers and the project architects at $140 per hour, not at $40 per hour uh, using that 3.5 number. Uh, now these numbers are far enough apart. Various of us could use the three, some could use the four, uh, some could use 3.5. I think 3.5 gets you to about 68,000, uh, so somewhere right about there. Uh, so you can see like it's not so much that it's exactly 70, it's that the only possible of the four answers that's anywhere near close is D. So this is the same question as the previous one. What we're talking about here is how we start to understand the flow of time through a project, and it partly has to do with uh, the sort of expectation of schematic design, design development, and those kinds of things. Those are contractually built in at certain percentages of the project, but it also has to do with how much literal time it takes to do something, but then that's about the billable hour, and the billable hour is going to be a number that includes how much it costs somebody to work on something for an hour, but then has overhead and other costs and uh, hopefully uh, profits built into the, on top of it. So like I said, I typically use 3.5. You'll see numbers that range uh, for multipliers between three and four. Hopefully that makes sense. Let's try number three. Something has come up during construction there needs to be a change to the A101 construction contract. Which of the following could be used? So this is one of those questions where you have to choose multiple possibilities. Uh, in this case, they've uh, told us it's two. So the obvious answer here is C, change order. So a change order refers to uh, any time during the construction process where something is changing. Uh, so uh, there's a ch change from the client, there's a, maybe a weather cause change, maybe a, an inspector said something, we have to alter where the, the exhaust fan blows out to or something like that. There's some change that the contractor could not have expected. Uh, and so it's not built into their contract. It's not built into the A101 construction contract. Remember the A101 is the contract between the owner and the GC, so the A101 uh, equals owner and GC. Uh, and anytime I have a change to that contract, there's always going to be three issues involved. And those three issues are going to be the scope of the change, the cost of the change, and the schedule change. And the reason that those three will always be part of every change order is because those are the three aspects that are referred to as the essence of the contract. So the A101 has many, many different issues attached to it. There's lots of definitions, there's all sorts of roles people play, there's a lot of different issues that are in there. But when you, if you were gonna sort of just take everything out and you had to have three pieces of information that would tell you exactly what's going on in this contract, the three things that the A101 would tell you is, what's the scope of work, what's the fee for building that scope of work, and how long will it take? Those three issues are the essence of the contract. 
and therefore, on a change order, those three issues would always show up on, uh, on the change order. So if you have, uh, maybe it's a change in paint color and the second color is more expensive, uh, but it doesn't take any longer, then you would say zero change to schedule. You'd still put it in even though it was a zero uh, days change. But then the dollar amount would change and then the scope obviously would change to the other paint color. Could be the exact same thing in the other way where maybe the paints are the same price, uh, but it's gonna take two weeks to order the second color of paint. So then the dollar amount change would be zero, but then the schedule would be altered by whatever amount of time, two weeks or whatever it would take uh, in order for that to get worked out. So the idea is that if those three things are part of the essence of the contract, then they, everything that changes the contract should be clear that how they change those three issues. So, okay, we've got, <clears throat> excuse me, we've got one of the potential two answers here. Let's get rid of a few, uh, few answers. Scope, well, scope sounds interesting. It's part of what we're talking about here, but it actually doesn't make sense if you read the sentence. It doesn't really, it's, it's a subset. It's not uh, uh, what would be used to, uh, to alter the contract. Uh, so scope isn't it, I'm gonna give a little X there. Um, IDM is the uh, initial decision maker and that's a part of a dispute resolution, so that's not it. Mediation is also part of a dispute resolution, so that's not it. A lien is interesting, that's a financial issue, it has a lot of contractual meaning, uh, but a lien is when somebody feels they've been burned on a project and is claiming a certain amount of ownership in order to force somebody to pay them or have some other uh, uh, remedy be, be made. So lien is interesting, but not relevant here. So the only two possible ones that are left are addenda and construction change directive. So addenda seems like a really good possible answer except addenda is when you change the drawings, you change the contract documents, but it's before there's a construction contract. So we don't have an A101 if we're in the moment of writing an addenda. Uh, if when we're putting the bid packages together, we have the bid package, you've got drawings, you've got the uh, spec book, you've got the project manual, you've got uh, the forms that the contractors are going to fill out, you're going to give all those pieces of information to the various different bidders, they're then going to ask you a bunch of questions. You can't answer those questions directly because you don't want anybody to have w w more information than anybody else. So you wait until you get a bunch of answers, uh, excuse me, a bunch of questions, then you're going to put together an addenda and you're gonna make an official addenda and send it out to everybody so that everybody sees all of the answers to all of the questions. So that addenda is a great way to change the construction documents uh, and even the contract documents, but you can't change the contract yet because you haven't chosen a bidder yet and they haven't signed the contract. So addenda is a very good answer, but not quite good enough. The other uh, answer is the construction change directive. Uh, many of you have probably heard of this, some probably have not. Uh, construction change directive is a very odd little animal. Uh, construction change directive, imagine you are working with a, on a project and uh, there's some change that comes up and you think it should cost about $500 extra to, to do that change. And let's say the GC comes back and says, yeah, we're going to give you a change order for $182,000. Well, 
And you're like, wait a minute, this should be about 500. This is not 182,000. That's, that's ridiculous. Well, the project needs to keep moving. You have to be able to keep, everything, everybody loses their shirt if everything stops. So you need to keep the project going. So clearly there's some dispute going on there. This is something probably between the contractor and the owner. There's something that's making them want to behave badly in this situation. So what do you do? Well, built into the contracts, you have the right to do a construction change directive, which would come from the architect. And it's essentially a change order for the amount of money and the amount of time and the scope change that you think needs to happen. And then you hand it to the contractor and they have to abide by it. But if they really don't believe that uh, the $500 is the right amount of money, then that would immediately start a dispute process. But the dispute process goes on uh, simultaneously and probably long after the actual work has been done. So the construction change directive is when you can't get a change order because you can't get everybody to agree to the number, uh, but you then say, okay, we're doing it anyway. You produce this document, the contractor does the work, bills for the amount they're available, that's available to them, but then would also probably start a dispute resolution uh, through mediation or litigation or arbitration or whatever, probably not through the IDM because that would be you, be a little awkward in that situation. Uh, and so they then uh, move forward with the project uh, and everything uh, just goes on as usual until the dispute res resolution comes back at which point the dispute resolution process may say, yeah, it should be $500, so no change to what we did. And then that construction change directive becomes essentially a change order. Uh, it could be that they come back and say, no, the contractor was right. It really should be $182,000. And then that means that the owner now owes them that $181,500 uh, more in order to compensate the extra amount. Uh, quite likely, it would come back as saying, well, 500 does seem a little low, 182 is way too high, uh, maybe it's 1,000, right? So then the owner would owe that extra 500. So it's a way of pushing the project forward when the change order can't, uh, you can't get agreement on the change order. Uh, and like I just said, there's a, depending on who you talk to, it depends a little bit. Um, at the end of the process, construction change directive, becomes a change order because you're actually changing, it goes back to changing the contract. And that's what the change and change order is referring to. Uh, I said that once and I got sort of corrected by a lawyer uh, because they were saying, well, look, by the time you go through dispute resolution, the project's probably done. You know, it's probably many months later. So you're not really changing the, the contract. You're now altering the sort of end result of the contract. And so it stays as a construction change directive, uh, but the contract uh, has this extra number on it. Whatever, that part won't be in the exam. Just to really understand change orders, the essence of the contract, uh, and the idea that if you can't get those things to work, then you have fallback positions. In this case, construction change directive, uh, which helps you through those complicated uh, moments when you can't get agreement. And that's all built into the basic AIA contracts. All right, we're about halfway through the group here. So, okay. a good group hanging on. Way to go. Number four, the client sends you a text that answers two of the four questions that you had asked in a design meeting earlier that week. What should you do? Or you should do what, excuse me. A, 
text is not a contractually formal uh, and accepted form of communication, and therefore you should not accept it. Yeah, I, I dare you to say to a client, I do not accept your communication. Um, so that's not going to happen. Uh, B, accept it. Clients can do whatever they want. Well, that's sort of true. Doesn't mean they can't do anything they want. They still have to be clear with you, and they still have to give clear information if you've been asking questions. Uh, it could have uh, repercussions for them in terms of costs, if it is delays, is all kinds of things. So yeah, I mean, of course, they're the client, so you, they can do whatever they want. But that's not really a great answer either. So then C, you should immediately enter the information in a design log. Well, that's going to be your answer. And this is one of those issues that is a big deal to NCARB and to the AIA. They uh, are in many places on the exam going to uh, push you to answer questions that are about having a reasonable system for how you're going to keep track of information. So what this question is really about is that text is complex and it's hard, it doesn't have the same sort of formal aspects that email and, and uh, uh, paper letters and phone calls even uh, have. It has a throwaway quality and so it's hard to know how serious people are in text. But also there's a tendency that people have to write uh, in shorthand and to write uh, kind of quickly in text, which leads to a lot of potential problems uh, because uh, you might uh, only get some of the information uh, in a, what potentially is uh, quite a complex uh, situation. Uh, so the gist here is have a system to accept all changes to the design. Have a system that would then respond with a sort of logical response. Uh, D is also a sort of possibly correct answer. You should text back that the other two issues were not responded to. But that's actually not really getting at the main issue here. The main issue is how do you keep track of all the changes? So having a log of the information, how it came in, what change made, was made, uh, all of that is sort of the key to running a project. Now, we all live in a world where text has become very, very common. Uh, I, my contractors are always laughing at me because I'm always writing texts back to their questions that are like paragraphs long. Uh, but it's actually a big issue. This, this sort of looseness of text uh, is, I think, likely to cause uh, quite a number of uh, complicated lawsuits in the future. And I can give you a quick example. Um, last year I was working on a project and uh, the contractor who I knew well, had worked with on many projects, had sent uh, me and the client a text and the text had, uh, I think it was six different questions in it. And the client responded, yes, and then some specific information about one of the questions. And so, the contractor went off and he assumed that yes meant yes to all the questions. And so he was ordering materials and getting ready and about to go. And I sort of thought, I'm like, that's weird that I didn't see any more information go back and forth. So I finally uh, responded and said, you know, 
did you mean yes, even though I was only being CC'd, I sort of jumped into their conversation. Did you mean yes to all six of these or did you just mean yes to the one that you gave the extra information to? And uh, it was about five minutes away from uh, a wall being placed in the wrong location. Uh, and we caught it just in time. It turns out they hadn't even looked at the other parts because they had only looked at it on their text in a way that they saw the last question. And so that was the only one they had responded to. And yet there was the contractor buying materials and putting the workers in line to do the work. It's a really dangerous way to communicate. Uh, and so the NCARB folks, if they ask you a question about it, it's going to be always about how do you organize and streamline that as a process. All right, how about number five? Client is using the house designs you made to build 15 structures. Who has the copyright to the drawings? So this is, uh, this is one of those questions where uh, you, have to, you have to really think about what, what is the actual question. Uh, and the first sentence, while telling, is actually a bit of a red herring. So let's just sort of run through the possible answers. Uh, a, you, the architect does. Uh, B, depends on what is written in the contract. C, client always has copyright. How else could they ever build anything? D, this would uh, likely be something that would be mediated. So in the typical contract, which remember the architect contract typical is the B101. There's a bunch of other ones. is B104, 107, a bunch of others, but the sort of typical one is the B101, and that's going to be the uh, owner-architect agreement. Uh, in that B101, the typical, uh, the way it's written into the sort of base document is that the architect always has copyright, but the client always has the right to use the work, all of the instruments of service, which we'll get to in a minute, uh, but the client always has the right to use the work for this project in this location. So the typical contract, the architect holds copyright. But there are many times, I would hazard a guess at, I don't know, 20% of the time or 30% of the time, something, uh, that that's not true, that it's very simply done, there's a, a very simple place in the contract to say that that's not the case, that the owner will take uh, copyright. And that makes a lot of sense in certain situations. So uh, in this particular example, the client is using house designs you made to build 15 structures. Well, if your contract is to do a prototype house, uh, then that prototype uh, can be, you would then in that contract make sure that the client had the copyright to the drawings and that they would then be able to, just like you knew they would, go ahead and build 15 more houses. Uh, there's lots of other situations where clients often want uh, the copyright. Uh, one example would be maybe you're doing a, a Taco Bell or something like that and they have a franchise branding information that they don't want anybody else to own. So you're working for them, th those contracts will absolutely expect you to hand over copyright to the, to the client in those situations. Uh, I can't really imagine what you would do with the Taco Bell design, uh, but I'm sure there's something. Uh, 
But there are lots of examples like that. Actually, many governments, uh, when you sign contracts with uh, government uh, uh, developments, uh, the governments almost always will demand uh, copyright, which is kind of goofy because it's kind of unlikely they're going to do the same building again or something like that. But whatever, it seems to be built into uh, government contracts. So there's plenty of places where uh, even though it's built in that the architect has copyright, there are plenty of times when that little bit gets uh, crossed out and the copyright is handed over to the owner in the contract. So the answer is, well, it depends on what's going on in the contract. Uh, because it isn't necessarily, A, is not necessarily true. It's certainly the background true, but it's not something you could say with 100% surety. Uh, C, the client always has copyright. First of all, anytime you see the word always, be nervous, uh, because the client doesn't always have copyright. They always have the right of use, which is different from copyright. They have the right of use for that project at that location. And then if you hand over copyright in the contract, they have it. Uh, and then this would likely be mediated. Maybe that's true, uh, but mediation would only really work if the contract was still uh, moving forward. So that one's not really uh, a part of the game either. So I, I know it sounds kind of wishy-washy uh, to say, but depends on what is written in the contract. That is absolutely the kind of thing that NCARB is trying to get you to, to realize is that the contracts have certain things that are part of the base uh, but then uh, you, you have to, uh, there are systems for altering it, and then once you've altered it, that's now what you follow. So it's always about looking back at the contracts. Looks like we're hanging on with just about eight people here, so. Way to go. That was a little, little funny, because it's talking about the, what's in the base contract, but also these other issues as well. So uh, it's a little tricky, and uh, the actual question on, an, on a real exam would probably be a little longer, give you a little more information. Let's try number six. Your client in Minnesota approaches you on a fast-track project. It is clear that this will increase the construction costs. Why might the client want to use this system? So first of all, a system of what? Fast track is a system of project delivery. Uh, so when we say project delivery, um, I'm going to say Dell. Uh, when we say project delivery, design build would be an example of that. Uh, design bid build would be an example. Fast track, uh, integrated project delivery, uh, multiple prime delivery. Those are all different versions of project delivery. So fast track project delivery is this crazy, crazy, crazy uh, way of building where the architect works on a package of information for the excavation. They hand that package over. The contractors start uh, digging the hole and putting in the foundation. Uh, while they're digging the hole and putting in the foundation, the architects are now working on the structural system. Uh, as soon as they're done with that, they're going to hand that over to the contractors and they're going to start building the, the structural system as soon as the drawings get to them. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, so clearly you're designing while it's being built. There is no way that can make any sense. So one of the things we know uh, why a client might choose this it's absolutely not for quality assurance because quality assurance is the last thing that's happening in fast track. You are guaranteed to make mistakes. So there must be some other reason why uh, you would be thinking about doing this. Well, one of them is uh, it's very expensive 
to keep the loans for a long time. Uh, you know, some places you're going to have very small land loans and project loans. Other places you're doing a high rise uh, downtown and uh, you're in the middle of New York City or LA or something and uh, you've got a, a big project going. It could be that, uh, you know, if you take six months longer, that might cost you a million dollars in loan fees. Uh, and if you can make only $500,000 in mistakes, well, you just saved 500000 So the bridge loans, the other kinds of loans, all of those can be very expensive if the project takes longer. If you can smash it together, which is what Fast Track does, uh, you can save some time, which therefore can save some money, even though you know it's going to cost extra money and you're going to make mistakes because it's a crazy way to build. Uh, how about C, hard deadline for schedule? Absolutely, places people do uh, fast track all the time when it's for, say, a sports stadium or it's for uh, high school and the kids are going to show up on August 29th. Uh, you know, there's a hard date and you got to be ready, right? So, uh, hard deadline for schedule. Uh, weather issues. Well, that one's kind of an interesting one. You may notice that I threw in here this little Minnesota uh, line, and that tells us that it's in the north and things get cold. So quite often, the reason people will do some fast track work is because they want to get the foundation in before winter kicks, or maybe the brickwork done before winter sets in. So weather issues can absolutely be part of why you might do uh, a, uh, a fast track project. And then uh, the uh, fourth one, because we're looking for four in this case, the fourth one, uh, penalties for delayed finish would also be uh, a reasonable answer, so not zoning variances. Uh, and penalties for delayed finish would be an example where uh, you know, maybe the developer that you're working for uh, it has a contract with somebody else, maybe the city, maybe a state, maybe uh, some other owner, uh, and they've said that they will have uh, the project up and running by a certain time because, uh, you know, other projects need to fall into place or the shopping mall can't open until that's ready or whatever it happens to be. There may be multiple owners involved in lots of different contracts and often the reason that you end up getting into fast track, fast track uh, uh, project delivery is because there's some penalties involved if you don't meet the, the timeline. So uh, fast track, it's a ridiculous way to build but there are certain situations where it just makes sense uh, and because it's so funny uh, and sort of noticeable, it seems like an easy one for them to ask questions about. Down to six. All right. All right, this one's going to kill everybody. Jesus, man. Uh, so we're going to go through this one kind of quickly. <laughs> I'm not going not gonna to do a full thing on it. Um, uh, maybe I can write one something out and we can get to it. But uh, all right, using critical path method schedule for a kitchen rehab, how many days of float are there for installing the countertop? I think I missed a word, and I think there's supposed to be four in there. Uh, float, uh, how many days of float are there for installing the countertop if A, the demo will take three days, B, the tile will take seven days for delivery, C, the framing will take four days, D, the delivery of the cabinets will take 10 days, E, the countertop will take six days for delivery and two days for install, 
Uh, F, the appliances will take three days for delivery and one day to install. And G, the final paint job should take two days. Uh, the painting cannot happen until the cabinets are installed. Measuring and ordering of the countertop cannot happen until the cabinets are installed. The cabinets uh, cannot be installed until the framing is done. After the countertop is installed, there will be one day of touch-up, uh, and then the flooring can be installed at any point uh, after the demo. So, okay, what is this really getting at? Uh, I'm going to do a very quick version of this. If you imagine... We Mike, is this happening in your house right now? <laughs> yes. Can, you, can you tell that I'm like working out the problems that I have? <laughs> Trying to get some help. <laughs> That's right. Anybody needs to uh, make some money laying some tile, let me know. Uh, so we've got demo, say. So there's demo, and that's going to be three days. And then we've got uh, ordering the tile, okay? And that's going to take, uh, what was it, seven days, I believe it was. Uh, and then we've got uh, ordering the cabinets. Now I can do all that stuff uh, right on day one, right? I can start the demo, I can order the tile, I can uh, order the cabinets uh, right on day one. Uh, once I start uh, wanting to frame, I have to wait until the demo is done. So framing is gonna start right about there and that's gonna take about that long. Uh, so that's framing uh, and you start to see that, well, the demo and the framing, even if we add them together, are less time than ordering the cabs, the cabinets, right? So those two things have a little bit of float. The first thing that must happen is we must order the cabinets. So the cabinets are on the critical path, right? Uh, and then we can't do anything about the countertops until the cabinets are in, because you have to measure the cabinets and get a final measurement for countertops. So that can't happen until that point. So that's the countertop. And then there's a day of touch-up. So the actual critical path is ordering the cabinets getting the countertop measured and ordered and installed, and then the touch-up. That's the critical path. So critical path method, CPM. The demo and the framing can happen anywhere in there. We've got what's referred to as float. We could start on day one and be done earlier. We could forget that and start uh, on day three or four and then finish up just as uh, the cabinets arrive and we start installing. And same with uh, installing the appliances and all the other little bits and pieces that are in that giant uh, paragraph up there. So the thing that's the critical path is the ordering the cabinets, dealing with the countertops, doing the touch-up. So it's all on the critical path, therefore the answer is A. We have zero days of float. Float is when something, if you delay it, it doesn't necessarily delay the actual schedule. Anything that's on the critical path, if you delay it, it's delaying the whole schedule. So I don't know if they're still as into it as they were, but NCARB used to always have a bunch of questions about critical path. So it just seems like something you should get used to. Uh, if you don't understand it from this, we've got other uh, resources for you.
Let's go to number eight. Okay, an owner is upset over the final design for the CD phase and insists that something important has changed since the previous review at design development. They asked to review the instruments of service of the architect to see what has changed. What might be included in the instruments of service supplied? Uh, and then we're looking for three possible answers. So the uh, first one here, A, uh, presentation documents from SD and DD. Well, absolutely. Uh, the instruments of service are the work that you do as the architect for that project. So uh, your presentation documents for SD and DD phases, absolutely, those would be a part of it, especially if this is the client is concerned about something that they saw in the DD phase that they don't see it now. You would absolutely want to present all of that information so they could see the continuity uh, as it moves through. And then B, internal memos from architects to consultants. Uh, absolutely. Um, the one caveat I really should have put on this uh, answer for this project. Um, so, sorry about that. I, I really should have said for this project. Uh, but yeah, absolutely. Internal memos going from the architects to the consultants and back and forth. Uh, that's for that project, that's all part of the instruments of service. This is the work that you do for this project. How about the phase one environmental reports? Nope. And why not? Because the owner is the one who gets the phase one and phase two environmental reports. The architect does not. Therefore, you would not be giving them back the information that they gave to you. In fact, you don't want to give them that information. Now, maybe you've done some research about some particular uh, issue that came up from that. That would then be part of your instruments of service that you did as part of this project. But uh, if you're talking about just the phase one report, that's something they have already. So you can't give that one back to them. Uh, you don't want to take responsibility for it. You don't want to have anything to do with it if you don't need to. All right, how about insurance policies? Well, nope. Uh, insurance policies are not going to be appropriate. It is possible that they may ask, in fact, this happens all the time, for a certificate of insurance, which is something that uh, sort of shows you know, your insurance, your surety, their insurance carrier, uh, would produce a document that says, yes, uh, they have a, a million dollars worth of insurance and it's with this company, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, that's different. That's something they may ask for and you can decide to give them, but it's not part of your uh, instruments of service because it's not about that project. It's about the practice in general, not about that project. Uh, so insurance policies, do, would not fit under the heading of instruments of service. Uh, how about E, code assessments of the site by the project architect? Absolutely, that's research and analysis that's been done, even if it was done in-house and you know, just a, a, a memo or a set of diagrams for the other designers to work with, that's still part of the work that you did for this project for this client. So that is, they're still paying you for that work. Now, the likelihood that they're gonna actually ask you for all of this stuff is really slim. Uh, it really only comes up if there's some question or some problem or they just want more information because they 
you know, want to reconsider something or like it, it doesn't come up very much. Uh, but the idea is anytime you're doing work and they're paying you for it, that is the instruments of service and they have access to it. Like I say, they probably won't want that access because really who the hell wants your memos to the consultants, uh, but they could have access to those. Uh, zoning code obviously is just the zoning code and that doesn't make sense for you to be sending that to anybody. Um, so one interesting example here might be research. If you imagine uh, you're doing research generally uh, and you've been looking into uh, photovoltaic panels and how you can integrate those into siting materials. Uh, and then you start a project and you're working with this client and they know that you've, been, that you've done that research before and then and it turns out it's not a good fit and the, the contract breaks apart and is split up between you and, and that client and that client then says, well, we want all of your research that you've done on photovoltaics and exterior uh, siding materials. Uh, if you had done that research previously, or even if their fees weren't paying for it, then that's not your instruments of service for that project. That's something you're doing as a development issue for your overall office, for your practice, and that's a separate issue. If, however, you were doing that research on their dime and they were paying you and you were doing that research, then you got to give them all that research. So the idea here is the instruments of service, there's a sort of fine line on some of these things. Uh, some things are work that you've done uh, for previous projects that you're sort of pulling in, but as soon as it becomes part of this project, it's now part of the instruments of service. But uh, you can't expect that somebody to pay for your time to do research if you're not going to then allow them to take that research uh, later with them uh, to, to use as they want to do, use. So the instruments of service, it's everything that you produce, memos, sketches, presentation documents, all of that stuff for a particular project, for a particular client at a particular site. All right. Number nine. So anybody who's dealt with this issue uh, would probably have a pretty quick answer to this. Uh, if you haven't dealt with it, then it may seem a little uh, out there. The architect is reviewing the bid from one of the potential contractors. It includes a retainage of 20%. Which of the following is probably true? It's a typical new construction project. It's a typical adaptive reuse project. It's a government contract. It is probably an historic renovation. So, okay, what is retainage? Retainage uh, is the idea that uh, um, you're going to um, hold back a certain amount of money uh, in order to, uh, as you pay out each of the uh, contracts, as you pay out the plumbers, as you pay out the masons, as you pay out uh, all of these other folks, you're going to hold a little bit of that money back uh, and you're going to uh, even if they've done 50% you know, of the work, you're not gonna pay them the full 50%, you're gonna hold back a certain uh, retainer. Uh, the only reason you would use a retainage so high is if you're doing a complicated project like a historic renovation. Uh, so it's possible that you might have a 10% uh, 
uh, retainage on a typical uh, project, uh, either new construction or adaptive reuse. Government sometimes is 5%, depends on the scale, sometimes 10%. The only time it would go above that would be in a very highly specialized situation and you need to have uh, a lot of ability to get those contractors to come back onto the site. That's what retainage is about. It's about uh, holding on to a certain percentage of the money until the project is done and then that way when the project is finally getting ready, if there's just a few little pieces, that means there's still 20% of their fee waiting to, for them to get paid even though they only have a little bit of touch-up or a little bit of uh, masonry work. It's uh, the kind of thing you would do in a highly specialized thing to have it be that high. Okay, number 10. The architect is doing construction cost estimate. They're using an assemblies type cost estimate. What stage of the project, uh, what stage uh, is the project at? Sort of oddly worded, sorry. Uh, what would you guess that, that, that what's going on here? Is it the end of SD? Is it the end of DD? Is it during programming? Uh, or should the architect never do a cost estimate? Well, as much fun as it would be to say that the architect should never do a cost estimate, that is definitely not the case. Uh, again, always worry about words like never and always and things like that. It's just not a smart way to, to go most of the time. There are occasionally when, it, when those words work, but not usually. Um, so the question really is, what kind of cost estimate uh, are you doing at each of these different uh, phases? So maybe at programming, uh, you might be doing something like, Let's see, okay, we're doing a, uh, a junior high school, uh, and this junior high school is gonna be for 400 kids. And we did one two years ago that was for 500 kids. Uh, so we can kinda take a percentage of the cost that it took to do, and the fees that it took to do that one, and kinda how much things cost to build. We can kind of adjust it off of that previous experience or maybe we might be using a kind of general square footage number, something like that, like it's gonna be $250 a square foot or something along those lines. Uh, so programming phase, I'm not gonna be using an assemblies type, I'm gonna be using a comparative or uh, some sort of very simple square footage uh, idea. When I get to the end of schematic design, uh, that schematic design, uh, I will, as an architect, I am actually uh, typically required, not always, depends on how the contract reads, but built into the contract is the expectation that the architect will provide something of a cost estimate at the end of SD, at the end of DD, uh, and then do they do it at the end of CDs? No, because that's why you have bid. Uh, the bid is the cost estimate. So you are doing cost estimates all the way along and you're hoping that those cost estimates are matching up nicely uh, with what the bid to come is going to be. So if that programming one was very sort of loose and just kind of a, a rough comparison to another uh, previous project, well then the SD one, now you've done a little bit of design work, maybe you can say, all right, the basements we can count at $100 a square foot, but the main spaces are going to be at $250 a square foot, and then the carports and something else will be at $40 a square foot. Like you're getting a little more specific and you're aiming in a little bit. And so it should be slightly more accurate than your first example. Well then, by the time you get to the end of DD, design development, you should actually know what all the 
walls are. You should know how the structural system is going to work. You don't necessarily know all the details yet, but you know the gist of all those uh, assemblies. Note that I use the word assemblies. And so when you are doing a cost estimate at the end of design development, you're going to be using numbers like, uh, you know, $12 uh, per linear foot uh, for a uh, one wythe brick wall. Uh, and then maybe we're adding another uh, $5 for the backup per linear foot, et cetera, et cetera. So what that's building in, that brick wall, it's building in all of the stuff that you would put with that brick, uh, the, the tie backs, the flashing, the insulation in the air gap, the, all of those things would get put into that assembly. And then you could just look at it as a linear number. So is this as good as doing a full on, like counting every brick and doing it? No, of course not. It's not gonna be as detailed as what a, uh, a contractor would do when they're doing full bid, but it's much more accurate than just using a square footage number and you're really getting close. So you'd have all the wall assemblies, all the floor assemblies, all the roof assemblies. You'd have a sort of a, it's not really an assembly, but you'd have an idea for uh, the concept for the mechanical, uh, you'd have an idea for the electrical system uh, kind of based off of square footage. Um, so it's a way of building up. You're still using these sort of rounded numbers that you're looking up uh, online or in a book uh, and or you know finding some information from somewhere. You're, you're getting uh, a whole series of different pieces of information, but this is still probably only 30 pieces of information. A full bid is hundreds of pieces of information. So uh, when you're talking about the assemblies type, that's when you have an assembly. So it's everything for that assembly. So let's say it's a floor assembly. I've got the wood floor. I've got the subfloor. I've got the uh, 2x12s. Uh, I've got the drywall on the bottom side. And I've got some sound attenuation uh, material in between. All of that stuff would be understood as a per square foot. So I don't have to start adding in all those different elements. I just have one number for that full assembly. So I just have to count up all the assemblies and then figure out which ones are linear foot, which ones are square foot, uh, which ones are, don't occupy in that way, like a mechanical uses a different system than that. But I would figure out all those square feet, all those linear feet, and then I just add up those numbers, and that's going to get me a very close estimate. So that's about as close as architects ever get. If you're going to get more than that, typically you're going to bring in a contractor or some other estimator who's going to do the full-on uh, estimate. All right, good deal. So we have some, a good handful of questions here. Before we get to them, I just want to remind everyone, thank you for everyone who's uh, submitted a couple of questions uh, for us to ask Jared Zern, the director of the exam from NCARB. If you haven't done that, if you'd like to, please throw a question or two in the question box. Anything you want us to ask Jared, uh, we will ask him and uh, bring it back uh, for you, uh, perhaps for our next ARE live session. Um, we'll certainly post it. Could be you know. informational, could be hard hitting, could be whatever you want. Yeah, just throw it in the question box. Um, so in the meantime, let's see here. What I'll do is let's start with, um, so Karen had a, a two good questions. Um, she said, can you could explain the concept of float a little bit more? Um, yeah, let's do that. Can you talk a little bit more about float? Yeah, 
so um, if you if you haven't dealt with uh, critical path method, it seems quite alien, and I know doing it fast like this is a little tricky, uh, but it's actually a very simple idea. So if you think of the critical path being the things that must happen before the next thing can happen. Uh, so a little mini version of that would be in what we wrote out here, the demo was gonna take three days, I think it was, and the framing was gonna take four days. So I can't start framing until the demo is done. So there's a little mini critical path within there. Those two get tied together. But if the cabinets are gonna take 10 days to order, and I order them on day one, and the demo and the framing together only add up to seven days, that means I could start the demo literally on day one, and then be done at day seven, and then everybody just stands around and waits for three days until the cabinets show up. Or I could wait three days, and then start the demo, and then do the framing, and that takes seven days, and so that would, uh, the combination of those two, and so if I waited the three days and then did that seven-day thing, then we'd be done with the framing just as the cabinets arrived. So the fact that the demo and the framing can happen at any point in that 10-day period, now it can't happen at any point, like if we started on day seven, well then that's gonna push our framing well past the time when the cabinets arrived and so now we're delaying the project. But if we have that uh, overall cabinet ordering period, and we've got two parts of the project, the demo and the framing, this could slide that way, or it could slide that way. And that slide is referred to as float. And since the cabinet is 10 days, and this total together is seven days, that means we would have three days of float for the demo and the framing because the, that can happen. It can float back and forth. Uh, now, a critical path method, one of the things that's interesting about them is they're very detailed, uh, but the interesting thing is you often find surprising elements that are holding up the critical path. This is why people do it. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, because the whole point is you're sort of figuring out that you know you, you might be sort of cranking along and the project is ripping ripping forward, but uh, now you're three days away from when the tile needs to be set, and it turns out the tile takes six weeks to order. Well, it doesn't really help all that much to order it then, because that means everybody's going to have to go home for five weeks until the tile shows up. Uh, and so the idea of the critical path method is you start realizing which are the things that are actually driving the, the narrative here, driving the schedule. Now, one of the things that happens on critical path method projects all the time is that it never stays the same critical path. Like, it's constantly evolving. And that's because, you know, you thought it was going to take 10 days to get the cabinets, but it turns out it's 14 days. Or uh, you thought you'd be able to frame in, in four days. Well, it turns out somebody got sick and it took six days. Right? Things change constantly, so it's a living document, and the critical path is constantly changing. Uh, and it can change pretty dramatically, uh, very easily, just from a few simple uh, little decisions. So the idea of float is when it, it's still on the path, it's still part of the schedule, but it's not necessarily 
uh, nailed down exactly where it needs to be because it, it can float back and forth on the schedule to a certain degree. So that's the idea of float. Hopefully that's clear. One question Jason uh, asked was, should you record all text messages by saving them uh, in order to protect yourself? If there's ever a dispute or something like that. Yeah, um, that's a really good question. Uh, I would say yes, unless you're the one making the ridiculous comments in your text. Um, like this is just one of those sort of reminders that you know when you when you write a text about how annoying your client is, if anything comes down to it, and they are uh, you know asking for all of the information, if other bits of information have transmitted through text, they really should see all of the information that transmitted through text. So just a little heads up there. Um, uh, but in general, it's probably not a bad idea to keep all that, at least for you know, through the project or through something, or finding some way to sort of cut and paste it into a, a log or something. Um, that's, a, that's a very good idea. You're not really required to do that. The main thing you are required to do is to keep track of the project and to make sure that the, the client, the owner, uh, understands the track of the project. So that's why you're keeping design logs, that's why you're keeping minutes for the meetings, that's why you're doing all of those things where there's, there's a, a record of all of that stuff having happened. And so the, the fact that you have a design log that says uh, was texted uh, on you know, April 18th that uh, you know, we're gonna install the six foot version of the cages for the storage, not the four foot version. Well, as long as you have that in your design log, that's probably enough. You probably don't need to actually keep the texts, but it's not a bad idea. And then lastly here, uh, before we, we head off here, um, the definition of instruments of services. Would you add to the definition, and maybe you could, re could refresh it one last time, um, only work that's paid by uh, paid for by the client. Yeah, that's that's a pretty good uh, way to to say it. I'm a little hesitant to say that quite so directly uh, because there's an awful lot of time when you're working on a project, but the client isn't actually paying for it yet. Um, so, say for example, you're still in DD, but uh, you happen to have the office expert on. Uh, um, what uh, uh, wall sections uh, in in town right now, and so you're going to work with them on the wall sections, even though that's really a CD phase. Uh, you know, so the client technically isn't paying you for that work yet. They're going to pay you for that work later on, but it's still the work that you were doing for that client for that site. And I, th it's a little confusing, but I think that would still count as your instruments of service. Uh, so even though you hadn't gotten paid yet for that, uh, I think it would still be that. But you're on the right track. The, the idea there is the, the whole concept of instruments of service is we tend to think of the, what the client gets is what we give them, right? We give them some presentation drawings, we have some conversations along the way, maybe we give them some samples, and then at some point we're at the end of CDs, we hand them the the full role of drawing and the project manual and help them bid it out. And that's all true, that's all part of your process. But technically, they are paying you to do all the work that it took to do that. And so it's everything that you're doing for that project. And you're typically getting paid for all of that, 
but you know, knowing the exam, I could just imagine it being a little tweaky that way. Mm -hmm. All right, well, we're going to end it there. So thank you, Mike. And thanks to all of you who've tuned in and submitted their questions today. Great questions, by the way. Thank you so yeah, much. Yeah, there's actually a ton more here um, that I sadly have to, to, to skip. So thank you for, for sharing them, guys. Um, if you'd like to attend our next ARE live broadcast, where we'll ask a group of recently licensed architects how they did it, um, what their favorite food to eat after the exam was, among many other things, <laughs> be sure to visit blackspectacles.com slash podcast to register to attend. And just like today's episode, you'll have a chance to interact with um, uh, the group and, uh, and get feedback during the broadcast. Uh, to learn a little bit more about our ARE exam prep curriculum, you can go to blackspectacles.com where you can try out any of the free course videos. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, if you want your boss to pay for your membership, be sure to visit blackspectacles.com firms to learn more about our firm memberships for firms of really any size. Um, for those of you who are ready to start preparing for the ARE right now, and if you're already an AI member, you can use coupon code 41817PJMPC to get a 15% discount for the entire duration of your ARE exam prep membership. Finally, please leave a comment below the video to let us know what you think and share any suggestions you may have. I promise we'll read every word that you write and use them to tune our next episodes. So thanks for watching.